What is the significance of number 87? Well, I'll tell you, it's the next episode of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. Stay tuned to learn about postnuptial agreements. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now, your host, Jason Lavoy. All right, welcome to number 87 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lavoy, aka the Divorce Resource Guy. And today, we're going to talk about postnuptial agreements. Not sure what that means? Well, then you're in the right spot because many of you, I would assume many of you, have heard of prenuptial agreements. agreements. But have you heard of postnuptial? If not, you're in the right place. We're going to learn about it today. My guest is Campbell Barrett. Now, Campbell chairs the family law and appellate practice groups, both of which have been named Department of the Year by the Connecticut Law Tribune. He is uh, a member of Pullman and Comley, a law firm in Connecticut. He represents clients in complex, high income, high net worth cases across the state and handles all aspects of family law, including asset division, alimony, child custody, child support, appeals, prenuptial agreements, and postnuptial agreements. He's acted as lead counsel on more than 60 appeals to the Connecticut Supreme and Appellate Courts, including many important cases of first impression. You can learn more about him in the show notes, but let's get right into it and talk with Campbell Barrett. Campbell, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on. I understand this is your first podcast. It is, and I'm very excited to be here. Yes, this is a great honor um, for me. <laughs> All right. So um, the way I start off every show is by giving you an opportunity to let people who may not be super familiar with you a little bit about yourself, your background, and the path that you've taken to get where you are today. So you will be no different. Uh, so let everybody know a little bit about who you are and kind of how you got to this point. All right. Well, thank you. My name again is Campbell Barrett, and I am a divorce lawyer here in Connecticut. Um, Connecticut's a, a small state, and I represent folks across the state. So I, it's not just one geographical region in Connecticut where I represent parties. I do it virtually in every courthouse in Connecticut, and I've done that for the last 26 years. Um, I work for a a larger law firm, which is somewhat unique in the family law arena. Most divorce lawyers, at least here in Connecticut, work for smaller, either solo practices or boutique firms. But I work in a, a larger firm, um, and that gives me the, the springboard to, to have offices across the state and to have the resources to, to handle the, the matters that I do. Um, and we handle all aspects of divorce, um, uh, custody, prenuptial agreements, postnuptial agreements, um, the division of assets, questions of alimony. We settle cases, we try cases, we mediate cases. We, we, we pretty much offer every tool in the toolbox uh, for our clients to try to get them the best possible result in a very difficult trying time. Excellent. And how big is the family practice of the firm? So the family law, we have seven family law lawyers in our firm. The firm's 100 lawyers or so, but seven of the lawyers are, are family law practitioners. And we're we are uh, scattered across the state in our various offices, but we all work together uh, in our various cases. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and at the end, we'll make sure you give people more information about your firm and how they can reach out if they are interested uh, and live in Connecticut. So 
Today's topic is going to be postnuptial agreements. Um, but before we get into that, let's, I think, start off in case people are not familiar with or ever heard of postnuptial. Most people have heard, I think, of prenuptial agreements. But just give everybody a basic breakdown of the difference between a prenuptial and a postnuptial agreement. They are virtually identical with the exception of the timing when they are negotiated and executed. So a prenuptial agreement is an agreement that predetermines certain rights in the event of a divorce that is executed before the marriage. And a postnuptial agreement is the exact same thing that is negotiated and executed during the marriage. So after the parties are married, they can enter into the equivalent of a prenuptial agreement, and it's called a postnuptial agreement. And so a postnuptial agreement would be something that would be done during the marriage pre divorce or is it something that's initiated as part of a divorce it is it is typically done uh pre-divorce and really not necessarily in contemplation of a divorce but perhaps in lieu of a divorce so in 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 many circumstances people who are having issues in their marriage it's a rocky marriage and they're not sure that the marriage is going to last but they want to give it a go but they also want to uh secure certain rights um and obligations um, at that time, as opposed to waiting until perhaps the marriage might fail, but we'll, you know, we're going to give it a go, but we're going to, we're going to assign, uh, what's going to happen in the event of a divorce now. And so it's negotiated and, and signed during the marriage, really with the hope that perhaps it will never be used, but in the event that there is a divorce, this is what's going to govern many of the issues. So that's really interesting. Um, and I'm not sure many people are aware of that, even such an agreement, uh, or mechanism exists. Why do you think you've kind of explained it a little bit, but maybe we could just flesh it out a little bit more. Why do you think people would entertain or or think about entering into these post-nuptial agreements if seemingly you would think maybe that would be something they would think about doing before they're married in a, in a prenuptial agreement set up? Or is it something from your experience that people, you know, for whatever reason, didn't even it didn't occur to them to think about doing a prenuptial agreement and then something happened after they're married that triggered the idea for the postnuptial? Does that make sense? So I, I, every case is different and every circumstance is different. But a, a couple of the scenarios that I've seen where, where people have wanted to have a postnup, one is simply you know, we thought about having a prenup, we talked about having a prenup, and then we never did it. So now we're going to do it. Can we do it after we got married? And the answer, at least in Connecticut, is yes. Um, sometimes parties separate. Sometimes they file a divorce action, and then they reconcile. But they reconcile with the idea that, well, we've been through this process. Let's try to make it a little easier the next time if we have to go through it. Or as consideration of, sure, we're going to reconcile, but I want to make sure that this asset is not protected or this business interest is protected or this income is not going to be considered if we have a divorce. So it's done in that context. It also happens sometimes when during the course of a marriage, if something unforeseen happens, if, for example, if somebody has a business opportunity that's going to tremendously potentially in the future increase their net worth, increase the value of a business, they can um, and, and they, they don't necessarily want to share that. They can negotiate a postnuptial agreement to exclude that any appreciation on that new interest going forward, as if they were getting divorced at that time, but they are still rem remaining married. So those so, are some of the scenarios that I've seen. Okay, that's excellent. And, and 
so how does how does that work out in in the real world here you know where you have um i'm assuming a postnuptial uh, negotiation would work sort of like a, a prenuptial where each spouse would get their own attorney and it's negotiated with with both sides is that how it works or would one attorney I mean, that's, do that's it that's exactly how it works so then let's just take the example of a, a business venture um you have a marriage um and then one one side i guess has this opportunity and um could be i guess rather lucrative in the future but they decide they don't want their spouse to be part of that or part of the fruits of that labor how how does have you been on both sides of that table um, i have so how have. does if you're representing the the spouse that is not part of the venture or who wants to be excluded from that or who the other side is trying to exclude from that. What's the mindset there? Because to me, that would be, that would create a, a really kind of conflicting situation where if divorce wasn't on the table before, it might be on, well, it might be now. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head is that is that oftentimes there either is a spoken or an unspoken ultimatum that either you sign this or there will be a divorce right now and you certainly won't share because it's going to be in the future. Um, so it is it is it is certainly an awkward conversation that proponents of a postnuptial agreement have to undertake to advance the possibility of the agreement. Um, but when you are on the what I'll say the the non-moneyed side or the or the party that isn't the, the the one that first came up with the idea of the postnup, you have to be very careful that. Um, you try to get consideration for your client, meaning you try to get some kind of a trade-off of some, you know, a quid pro pro that if you're giving up this, well, then give me that. But oftentimes it does at least, um, it, it devolves into a, uh, a dialogue with your client that, you know, there may this, if, if you don't agree to this, there may be a divorce. And, and so at least in Connecticut, that, that finds its way into whether these agreements are ultimately enforceable or not. So, as with prenuptial agreements, it is possible to challenge a, a postnuptial agreement um, and have them deemed to be invalid and then have um, their terms be thrown out. And it, it, at least in Connecticut and in some of the other states that have adopted postnuptial agreements, they recognize that there is uh, perhaps not an equal bargaining power. Um, you know, for example, uh, I'll be gender biased in some case, you may have the husband who owns a business that may about to get a new contract that may generate tons of money. But then you've got a stay-at-home mom who's been out of the workforce for a number of years who has no income. And the husband says, here, you got a choice. You can sign off on this post-nup or you can get divorced. And so at least in, at least in Connecticut, the, the, the law would look not too favorably on that type of negotiating. And, and if the agreement is not deemed to be uh, fair at the time it's executed, um, in Connecticut, it won't be upheld. So there is a different, interestingly, there is a different standard in many states for the enforcement of prenuptial agreements versus postnups. And it is harder to enforce a postnup because when, when parties are not yet married, even though they're engaged, they're deemed to be more on equal footing. You can walk away from that and, and, and start your life in a different trajectory. If you're already married, that trajectory is oftentimes, if not always, well on its way. So there isn't the same equal level of bargaining for those that might get married as to those who are trying to preserve a marriage. And in many states, 
they address that by making it harder to enforce a post-nup. So you actually uh, litigated uh, a case that went to the, I believe, the Connecticut Supreme Court, right? I did. On, on the, was it the enforcement of post-nup? It, it, was, it was, so prior to 2011, Connecticut, where I practice, did not recognize post-nuptial agreements. There, there had been a long time recognition of prenups back to the 70s. And there was a statute in the 90s that endorsed that and set forth the standard for, for prenuptial agreements. But up until 2011, neither the legislature in Connecticut nor the courts had addressed whether or not postnuptial agreements were even recognized in Connecticut. And there are some states in Connecticut that still refuse and prohibit postnuptial agreements. So it was a, an unknown question in Connecticut. And I happened to have a case where the parties had on their own during the course of their long marriage had executed a postnuptial agreement. And so the question at that trial that we had was whether or not, first of all, whether or not Connecticut should have postnups. And then if so, what should the standard be? Should it be the same as prenups or should it be different? And so in that particular case, the, the trial court judge where the, where the case first went determined that Connecticut has never interpreted uh, and adopted prenuptial agreements, post-nuptial post agreements, and that they ought not to, and that as a matter of public policy, Connecticut um, should be among the states that does not allow them. That case, then we took, we took I represented the, the proponent of the post-nup in that case, and we took an appeal and that immediately went to our state Supreme Court, which is the highest court that we have in Connecticut. And, and the, the Connecticut Supreme Court doesn't take every case. They cherry pick the cases that they want and they probably take two or three family law cases every year among their docket of maybe hundred cases. Um, and in that particular year, 2011, this particular case on post notice agreements was one of the few cases that they took. And so we had the, uh, the argument before the state Supreme Court, and ultimately our Supreme Court determined that Connecticut does indeed and should indeed, as a matter of public policy, uh, accept and permit postnuptial agreements. And then that case established the test that now governs all postnuptial agreements in Connecticut. So it was it was a case that both first recognized the existence in the state and then established the applicable test. Right. And what would that test be? What is the test? So the test is that in, in kind of general terms, it has to um, adhere to general contract principles. Um, so um, the, it, it has to have all the hallmarks of a contract, but importantly, you have to have the ability to consult with a lawyer. So you can't have a situation where one spouse has no access to money, no access to lawyers, and the, and the spouse says, sign this in the next hour or we're getting divorced and they sign it, that probably wouldn't be upheld because that person didn't have a reasonable opportunity to have a lawyer. One of, you have to disclose your income, your assets and your liabilities. So you can't just have a situation where one spouse says, hey, uh, you know, uh, I've done pretty well in business and I wanna protect that, so sign this. You, you have to show what the business is worth. You have to show the, 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 the salient relevant information that, that is important for someone to waive their rights. Because really what you're do, doing in, in, in both a prenup and a postnup is you're waiving rights. Right. And if you're waiving statutory rights, you really have to be informed to do that. So having a disclosure of the relevant financial circumstances of both parties 
at least in theory, creates a scenario where people are knowingly waiving um, their rights. And then perhaps most importantly, the uh, a post-nup in Connecticut has to be um, fair, both at the time it's executed, but then again, at the time enforcement is, is sought. So it has to be a fair deal when you sign it, and it has to be a fair deal in the event there is a divorce at that time. So if, it, if, it's, if it's a situation where the parties are worth, I'll make up a number, $10 million, some, some very high number, and under the post-nup, um, one spouse is keeping 95% of that and the other spouse is keeping 5%, that probably isn't going to be deemed to be fair at the time of execution, but then play that forward even further at the time of the divorce. Several years later, the it's it's now thirty million dollars, and certainly you know one party taking twenty nine million versus a smaller amount for the other party would probably be unfair. So it really is it's a question of fairness both at the time of execution as well as at the time of enforcement. Now the example that you gave was on the extreme side of of fairness. But fairness is a pretty relative term, right? So are there any guidelines in Connecticut that really kind of outline what what fairness means in a, a postnuptial agreement? What what's fair? Where's the line drawn? Or is there no line? So I think there is no there's no percentage line and again every case is different. And the the in in the case that that the Connecticut Supreme Court uh, adjudicated back in 2011 that I was involved in, they talk about a number of different factors that may impact the fairness of a postnuptial agreement. One of them would be, are there children? And were there children born after the agreement that may impact one party's ability to generate income or assets um, after the execution of the document? So I think that's a good that's a good example of a situation. And they use it in the hypothetical sense in the case, but I think it does speak to the types of scenarios that would be deemed to be unfair. And if someone were to have a child and as a result of that, which in many cases it does, that party has impacted their earning potential and their earning capacity, well, that should be considered in whether or not what they agreed to in a post office agreement is now fair. It might've been fair before you had the kids, but right now it might not be given that change of circumstance. So, so you bring up a good point and I'm gonna bring up a, another point and this is just my lawyer brain speaking out too. Mm -hmm. So let me know what you think about this, although I probably could guess on what your answer is going to be. Now, I don't know how Connecticut does it because I always practiced in New Jersey, but when people would get divorced in New Jersey at the end, um, we would have what's called, assuming the case settles uh, and an agreement is drafted, we have what's called an uncontested hearing where mm -hmm. you put the divorce through. Uh, I would assume, I guess, Connecticut has something similar to that. Exactly the same. And we called an uncontested proceeding too. So there you exactly. go. <laughs> so during that hearing, right, usually we are the attorneys or the judge or a combination of both. You question your client uh, as to, you know, do they understand the agreement? Do they agree to all the terms? Um, and they're voluntarily waiving the right to trials and all this and the other. In other words, to confirm that they want to enter into this agreement. Um, I'm assuming Connecticut has something similar. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. So do you do that same routine when you put forth a, a post-nuptial agreement? Like, do you go so, before a judge and go through the same questioning? You, you, you don't go before a judge. So okay. because it's not a judicial, there's not a case pending. It's not a judicial proceeding. It's simply a private agreement between the parties. And I will say that in most good 
well-drafted postnuptial agreements, as is the case in prenuptial agreements, the exact same litany of questions are, are, are in the document and not in a question form, but in more of an affirmative statement form that neither party is being under duress. Both parties have been uh, given the opportunity to explore the income and assets of the other party. Both parties feel that it's fair and equitable. Both parties feel that it's in the best interest of the children, et cetera, et cetera. So you would simply recite those concepts that you would have in an uncontested divorce in an affirmative way in the in the body of the written postnuptial agreement. Gotcha. Now, so that being said, do you think that has any bearing later on if such an agreement is contested for fairness? How much weight do those affirmative statements have? I think that's a great question. And I think that in my experience, perhaps more so in prenuptial agreements than postnuptial agreements, because they're they're similar. And so prenups will also have that type of language right. in it. I think that oftentimes, uh, you know, a, a lawyer that is seeking to enforce either a prenup or a postnup will bring that out and will say, well, didn't you say this? Didn't you say this? And you signed this in front of a notary under oath, didn't you? But I don't think it has all that great import. I don't think it's certainly not binding on a judge. And I think judges are smart by definition, and they they recognize that certain language is probably boilerplate and it's probably in there as a matter of course. And they look more to the heart of the issue as opposed to whether or not somebody in the in the heat of the moment back then thought it was fair. It's not going to carry the day. What's going to carry the day is if the judge finds right here, right now, based on the facts and circumstances, based on the evidence presented, whether it's fair in circumstance. It certainly doesn't help someone who is contesting a prenup or a postnup that they have affirmatively said those things, particularly if they say them under oath, which in many, many situations, a prenuptial agreement and a postnups or a postnuptial agreement will be, the person will sign it and then they'll raise their hand and they'll say that they're signing it under their, their, their own free will. Um, so they're attesting to it and it'll have that language in there. So it doesn't help, but I don't think it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean automatically that the prenuptial agreement must be enforced if it's in there. Right. So in other words, it, it it doesn't help, like you said, but it's not binding and it's it's not ironclad, as they say. Right. Gotcha. Um, and great points. So we're nearing the end of our time already. I told you it would go quick. But let, let's end on this because I've been thinking about this the whole time. And I'm if I'm thinking about it, I'm sure a lot of the other people are thinking about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the going back in, in the scenario where um, you get married. And let's say there's no prenup um, and something happens, you know, we'll use the business example. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when the, we'll, we'll stick with the gender stereotypes, the, the, the husband gets involved at this op- business opportunity and wants a, a post-nup and uh, the wife says, well, hold on. No, I don't think I want that. And then they both hire a lawyer and then the discussion is kind of what you said before to the person representing the wife, you know, the discussion would be something like, well, the message is if you don't entertain this agreement, you're going to get divorced. So it's kind of like an ultimatum. Right. Either way now, in your experience, do those relationships end well? (laughs) Even if she enters into the agreement, I can't imagine that marriage going well. It, it, it I, I, your point is very well taken. That these these are, um, I don't think that these are frequently 
uh, the concept is broached and these are negotiated and executed in the best of marriages. I think that almost by definition, there has to be an issue in the marriage that leads someone to believe that divorce is certainly on the table and is certainly a possibility. And, and in my experience, the signing of a postnuptial agreement, it, 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 although intended in some situations to help that and to, and to eliminate the stress of what might happen, it might eliminate the stress for the more moneyed spouse. It certainly doesn't for the less moneyed spouse, but I think it probably does add a level of um, suspicion in, in a relationship and distrust. Um, I, I, in many cases, I think it does. I think it probably doesn't help a, a marriage that is struggling. Right. And I guess the, the same concerns prop up, I would imagine, pretty commonly with prenuptial agreements, too. You yeah. know, you're entering into this, you know, happy occasion that's supposed to last a lifetime, right? Nobody gets married hoping to get divorced, not that I've seen. And um, yet, one person may say, I think we should talk about entering into this prenuptial agreement, right? That doesn't oftentimes bode well um, for the other spouse, but um, I guess that's the, a, a better time to talk about your relationship and, and where you two are heading before you get married than after, after the fact. I, I, I read a decision once that referred to prenuptial agreements as the most unromantic document in, in America. Um, and I, I, the, the best prenups are the ones where everyone is being reasonable and everyone is uh, on the same page and there's a little bit of tweaking and you can execute the document, put it in a safe deposit box and move on with your life and enjoy your marriage. The worst ones, and I've experienced these and it's very unfortunate, is where it really begins to snowball in advance of the marriage and it really creates animosity between the uh, impending husband and wife or the impending spouses rather. And um, I, I have been involved in some cases where the prenuptial agreement has been so, um, such a conflicted situation that the marriage didn't happen. It was a deal so, breaker. Yeah. yeah, it was a deal breaker. And it's, 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 you feel awful when that happens, but people are, have their agenda and, and the, the real remedy for someone not executing a prenuptial agreement is simply not to have the marriage. And I've seen it happen. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, I've seen some very high-handed negotiation by, by the more money spouse in a, in a, uh, in, in the context of a prenuptial agreement where, where the, really the, 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 the person who is not the one advancing the document really has no choice. And, and, and if, if someone is really playing hardball, they've got a tough choice. Do I get married or do I not get married? And it's the same situation in a postnup. Do I sign this document, which might not be in my financial best interest to save the marriage, or do I say no and put the other side to their test if there really is an ultimatum and if it really is someone that's going to get divorced as opposed to sharing something that's been achieved during the marriage? So um, yeah, it, it 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 every case is different, and every uh, every party to a prenuptial agreement has their own individual agenda or postnuptial agreement, um, and different scenarios result from the negotiations. Sometimes you have it easy, sometimes it's not easy. In either in either case, I I think I would uh, promote that both sides you know participate in some sort of. Uh, counseling, premarital counseling or marriage counseling, right? To really iron out the underlying issues because that's what I think really comes out 
when you're talking about any of these prenuptial agreements or postnuptial agreement are the underlying relationship issues that are the bedrock of what would be a marriage or the marriage. And, and you know, if there are any cracks in that, that just become amplified. Yeah. I think uh, that's a great idea. I think I think I I may take that under consideration. And when I have one of these cases where it's a difficult negotiation, no, seriously, it's a difficult negotiation. Say to the client, hey, you know, you two may want to get into some type of counseling right now just to just to deal with what we all just went through, because you don't want that to ripple throughout the marriage. And that's not the job of the lawyer, right? You're not wearing no. the hat. And, and right. so you don't want to be caught up in that either. Um, and no. in family law, I know. It, it's it gets intertwined uh the business that you're trying to do and and the personal emotional aspect of it all so it's hard i uh yeah. and I while to, i certainly wouldn't do the counseling myself i wouldn't have a problem with recognizing that there's an issue and simply saying to my client look you may want to consider it it probably it probably won't hurt and it will certainly help right i remember when i was practicing i i would in certain cases i would force i said if you want to retain me you have to go to counseling <laughs> Yeah. And that's that's not an uncommon scenario when someone hires me for a divorce or a custody case and they come in with a presenting with a clear problem that alcohol or substance abuse, anger management, whatever it may be, that is really going to be a fa a, 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 a dominant factor in the case in a negative way. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Campbell, thank you so much. I think uh, this was a good crash course on, uh, well, actually pre and post nuptial agreements. Um, and everybody should consult not only an attorney in their state if they're considering uh, such an agreement because the, the standards and laws are different in every state, but this was a good base uh, lesson and what they are and, and, and how to deal with it. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Let everybody know where they can find you, uh, especially if they're in Connecticut and they want a, more information about divorce generally or postnuptial agreements. So I work for the law firm of Pullman and Comley, and I have offices in Hartford, Bridgeport, and Westport, and I can meet with clients in any of those locations. Um, you can look it up, look, look me and my team up on our website, which is pullcom, P-U-L-L-C-O-M.com. And we have a resource page that, that answers a lot of questions that people may have. And we're, we, we frequently meet with people, not just to initiate divorce actions or custody actions, but simply to give information if people are curious what their situation might look like in the event a divorce might happen. So we're here to, to help people navigate these very difficult waters, um, regardless of what their circumstances are. That's excellent. And all that information will be in the show notes if you're listening and you didn't get it down yet. So don't worry. Campbell, thanks again. It was a great having you on the show. Great. Thank you, Jason. There you have it. Another great episode in the books, as I say. I hope you learned something. hope it was informational and a bit entertaining as well. The moral of the story is choose wisely, I think, right? Because once you get married, um, you know, things happen, things can change, and you got to, I guess, go with the flow. Um, but you want to try to not find yourself in these precarious situations. Uh, but they do happen. And so, at the end of the day, we all have choices to make and, you know, we all have a right to be happy um, and secure. And so you want to just understand the dynamics at play. And then if you're in Connecticut, you know who to go to if you're dealing with a pre or post-nuptial post agreement issue or any family law issue for that matter. Campbell's your man. Otherwise, you know, every state has their own laws, but they are for the most part 
similar. So learning and listening to this episode will definitely give you a step up in your education when you do speak to an attorney licensed in your state. If you are looking for personal help with your divorce and you're looking for a coach, look no further. Contact me at jason at jasonlavoy.com. I'd be happy to get on a call with you and talk about my group coaching programs and my one-on-one personal coaching programs where we take a deep dive and form a personal strategy geared and catered to your specific situation because no two, no two divorces are the same. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, act confident, and stay positive. I'm Jason Lavoy, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon.